<clears throat> My, that's good singing. That's powerful. It's good to hear the organ again, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying that. I, don't, I might bring my banjo. I don't. I don't. <laughs> no, no, they say. <laughs> As people flee, <laughs> run for the hills. Pastor's got a banjo. We're going to continue this morning in Colossians chapter 3. Looking at verse 12, as we continue to unpackage the important exhortations that Paul has for us, a call to holiness and, and living in the context of the reality of our um, election. We have taken uh, the last couple of Sundays to unpackage the doctrine of election and to make certain that we're understanding it in terms of the purpose of it. And the purpose, of course, as we understand from God's Word, is that He has chosen for Himself a people to be um, holy, set apart, and as such identifiable as the redeemed of God, and that He has saved us for a purpose. Um, primary purpose was to give us back to His Son as a gift, the church, the bride of Christ, if you will, as we know from Scripture. And so this serves as an impetus for us then to live in a way that reflects the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. Paul's theme here in Colossians has been repeatedly about our union with Jesus Christ. And understanding that union is so very important for Paul and, of course, for us. And it was important to Paul because of what was happening in the church in Colossae. There was a false teacher who had come into this very solid church. By all accounts, Paul commends this congregation for their faith and their hope and their love. They had been well-pastored. By their, by their dear pastor, Epaphras, who would travel some 1,300 miles to get to Rome to speak to Paul about the problems that were arising within the church. And Paul then pens this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to address these issues and to bring people back to a central focus on the work and person of Jesus Christ. And this is a good reminder for us, too. We often take our eyes off of Christ like Peter we are overwhelmed by our surroundings and our circumstances, and we sink quickly when we do that. And so, it's good to have our focus um, re-engaged on Christ with laser precision as we see Paul doing that. And before we get into the Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our blessed Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this time together. Thank You for this sweet time of fellowship. What a unique and wonderful opportunity you have provided to us. There's nothing else like it in the world. And we're so grateful. We look forward to that day when um, together with all of the redeemed of Christ, we will lift our voices together singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And even this brief moment that we have to sing here, we are overwhelmed and enjoy that. But to think about all of the redeemed of all the ages lifting their voices together is overwhelming. We look forward to that. May our hearts be kindled afresh as we think and contemplate about your return and our union with you someday, whether through um, in, in passing or in joining you in some context, Lord. We pray that you would keep us and preserve us, that you would bless us through the Word today. This is an important time for us to be in your Word, to be looking to your Word, to be guided by it. Um, to have it change us, to transform our minds, to shape and, and, and inform our thinking is why we're here. 
and we love you and we want to know more about you and so open our hearts and minds to understand and comprehend the things of your word today. I pray, Lord, for those families in Texas who have lost their children this past week. Our hearts go out to them and we pray that you would comfort them. I know that some I've heard through many sources that know you and we ask Lord, that you would comfort them. This is a grief that is beyond in many ways comprehending. We pray for our nation. We pray that you would um, protect us, Lord, from evil people like this, this wickedness. And we pray that you would um, give opportunity to those who are in that community to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to give the hope that is in the gospel, to point people to Jesus Christ as the answer to this evil and this great time of suffering. We ask, Lord, that you would equip the pastors who are in that community today to be men who would stand in their pulpits and, and proclaim Christ and point people to Christ and give people an answer in Christ, in Christ alone. We ask, Lord, that you would um, continue to bless this congregation, protect us, preserve us, um, forgive us for our sins, forgive us for ignoring you, forgive us for not living for you. Uh, we are so grateful that we can come to you, we can confess our sins to you, and that you are faithful and just to forgive us and help us to be quicker to do that and more thorough in that regard. Uh, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive the word today. Bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. We'll read to verse 17. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, as I noted, we've been taking the time to unpackage the significance of this passage, and it's profound. There's a lot of very profound theology and theology that encourages us and exhorts us to, to be reminded of why it is that we are to live in a holy way. Of course, Paul is concerned about this because this false teacher apparently is leading people into all sorts of behavior and conduct that is not consistent with those who are the redeemed of Christ. And so he takes them back to the foundations. We know that from chapter 1 and chapter 2. He grounds them in their union with Christ. He reminds them of who they were when God saved them. He reminds them of all the things that have taken place with regard to the consequences of their salvation the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the fact that we have been buried with him and raised with him, that this old man, the old nature has been cut away, that picture of circumcision from chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12 um, speaks to the reality of the, the consequences of what Christ has done for us. And Paul then takes us now back in verse 12 to the issue of the doctrine of election, which he uses as a source, uh, as a source to impel us to live for Christ. Understanding this doctrine is important. People shy away from it. They're afraid of it. They don't like it. They hate it. They get angry when you talk about it. 
But as we talked about last week, looking back to the London Baptist Confession, we're reminded that it should be a source of great praise and joy and indeed even humility. It ought to humble us. And in humbling us, cause us to reflect on the magnitude of what it is that God has done for us. That God, before the very foundation of the world, chose for himself a people that would be set apart, people who would be identifiable by their holy living. And this is what Paul wants the Colossian believers to understand. And he wants it to be a reality for them in the terms of the way that they live and the way that they act. And as I noted at the beginning of our uh, dealing with this particular verse, verse 12, the title of this message and the series of messages has been um, uh, chosen for holiness. And we're reminded, as, as we were at the beginning, that the gospel involves us not only with God, but with our fellow man and with the world. And so we're not saved in order to be isolated. We're not saved in order to be a unique group of people who somehow gather in one particular place and never engage anybody else. Certainly we come together as the redeemed, but we go out into the world and we proclaim the wonders and glories of Christ. And we also demonstrate the realities of God's conversion and regenerating us by the way we interact and live with each other, the way we treat each other. And this begs an important question. Why is it that the church is so much known for its internal strife and struggles? People often say, I won't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. All they do is fight over there. The church is marked by this, and that's a sad, uh, a sad judgment on the church. I think in part it's due because pastors don't preach on the doctrine of election. They don't teach people what it means to be the elect of God and what a wonderful thing it is to be God's elect and what it then calls us to do, and how we joyfully respond to what God has done. And this is ultimately what Paul wants us to understand and comprehend. And so we see in verse 12, um, as we talked about last week, Paul makes this transition into verse 12. The word so reaches back into the, all the theology that's gone before, the idea of mortifying, the idea of putting sin to death, the idea of we are we are, we are having the image of God pressed upon us, as we know from verse 10, that there's no distinction now, that there's no barriers. We don't incorporate the world's barriers and divisions and distinctions into the church and use it as a means to manipulate and control other people, a message that's very relevant for the woke and social justice church today. They need to spend a lot of time in verse 11, uh, and they need to get the gospel right rather than corrupting it with their nonsense. And Paul, then transitioning with this word so, reminds us as who we are. He says in verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And Paul, we understand from looking at this, has reached back into the language from the Old Testament, language which God used to identify the nation of Israel, which now correlates and identifies the church, the spiritual Israel, if you will. And so this is important for Paul. These markers then flow out of who we are in Christ as a consequence of God placing us in him through the doctrine of election. And then Paul begins to use words here that describes who we are, holy and beloved. And we're going to talk a little bit about those words today. And so Paul will then call us to clothe ourselves, this language of putting something on, we'll see here in this verse, is important to Paul. And he's asking them to put on a corresponding character that's befitting their status as God's true spiritual Israel. 
and as ones united to the true seed of Abraham, that is Jesus Christ. And we have then this triad of names, if you will, in this passage. We're referred to as chosen, holy, and beloved. And this is the ground for our ethical clothing. The clothing that we put on, these virtues that are identified here, there are five, and there's a following sixth one in the preceding, in the next, in the next verse in regards to love. But he identifies these five things of a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the things that come out of being the chosen, holy, and beloved ones. This is our ethical clothing. It's interesting for us to be reminded of the fact that the issue of of living ethically and morally is often tied to by the apostles and the epistles that are written by them and the Lord himself to his return. As we anticipate his return, we think about the way that we ought to live. We think about how we ought to conduct ourselves. And this ethical clothing ought to be something that is evident to other people in the terms of how we interact with them both within the church and outside of the church. In in the Old Testament, we find the very same thing. God repeatedly tells Israel, does he not, the following, you shall be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It's throughout the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 11.44, 11.45, 19.2, verse 7, 26. And 21 verse 6. And so for Paul, the Colossians should be holy because God the Father and Jesus are holy. That's important. And again, this all goes back to the original purpose in our salvation. God didn't save you to make you fat and happy. God saved you for a purpose. God saved you to be salt and light in a dark and dying world. That's why he redeemed you. And we are joyful about that, even in the context of our suffering. The Bible is clear. It's a theology of suffering, not a theology of glory. Christians will suffer. They hated Christ. They're going to hate us. There are challenges that we face, yet in the face of these challenges, we are reminded of the fact that we are indeed the elect of God. We are His redeemed by His plan, by His purpose, the triune God setting forth, placing in motion a program, a process by and through which we would be saved. That should be a great comfort to us in the face of all adversity, in the face of even the wickedness that we see today in the world, in the face of all the calamities that befall us, we rest in the sure conviction that God has a plan and purpose for us because He has told us so, and He has set it in motion, and He he is indeed accomplishing that. But we want to be cautious, or we want to be concerned, rather, about the idea of living in holiness, and this is what Paul wants these Colossian believers to understand. So, as I noted, the Colossians should be holy because God the Father and Jesus are holy. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds us that the reality of this is such that we are now partakers of the divine nature. Out of that participation comes and flows out of our faith in Christ virtues that demonstrate the consequences of that redemption of that participation. 
And so the demand upon the believer's ethical lives, lives is based on Jesus' own life, which is clear from verse 13. If you want to move on in this chapter, look at verse 13 where Paul gives the example of Christ himself, bearing with one another, he says in verse 13, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, what, why? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So there you have it. The standard is Christ. The example is Christ. And the the example that we follow for our ethical lives is based on Jesus' own life. Now, what's interesting, too, is that Paul makes reference to the fact that they are holy and that they are beloved. And, and those, those words are important for us, and we're going to take some time to look at them in regards to their meaning and their application. Beloved evokes a family relationship where family members resemble each other. Isn't that interesting? And Paul would say in Ephesians 5, 1, become imitators of God as what? Beloved children. As beloved children. John would make similar references in his epistle of 1 John. This is a common theme for John in that epistle. And so, as as we will see here in this passage and in the balance of this epistle, this means that saints, you and I, Paul would refer to the Colossian believers as saints in the beginning of this epistle. The word hagios is used there, holy ones, as saints. As saints, we do what? We reflect Christ's image. And that image is constantly being renewed. Verse 10. Isn't that what it says? And have put on the new self who is being what? Renewed. To what? A true knowledge according to the image of who? The one who created him. So you see the purpose. You see the theme, right? I hope you're getting the sense of what's happening here. For Paul, the idea is that the demonstration of the reality of your salvation is borne out by the fact that you're living a holy life. God doesn't save you and just leave you to yourself to do whatever it is that you want to do. Now, we do that. We still struggle with sin. We still have times when we fall into sin and we, we, we fight it and we have difficulty. But the ultimate idea here is being expressed by Paul is that there is growth, that there is progression, that there is a consequence to what it is that God has done. And so he sets out these virtues to help us be mindful of what that progress looks like. This renewal is ongoing. It's constant. The Holy Spirit is always at work in us in that way. It's interesting, too, that this word beloved indicates that their identification, um, that they are beloved because of their identification with Christ, who is God's beloved Son. Isn't that wonderful? Paul uses similar language, as I recall, in verse 13. Go back to chapter 1 of verse 13, where Paul writes as follows, using this similar attribution for Christ, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. His beloved Son. And so this reference to being beloved is an indication that we are indeed joined with Christ. We are beloved because of our being joined with Christ. 
because he is the beloved son of God. Well, Paul uses this word holy as well, which is important, and I want to take a moment to talk about the significance of that word as well. Holy, uh, in the Greek, it's hagios, and it means to set apart for God. So when Paul opens up this epistle in Colossians chapter 1, as we're reminded, look at verse 2. He says, what? To the saints or the holy ones and fruitful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, or faithful brethren, rather, in Christ who are at Colossae. So this is how he's identifying them. This is who we are. This is our immediate identification in Jesus Christ. The consequence of our union with him is to be found within this designation or this category of being holy. And as we know, the elect are those set apart for God. So that holy word correlates to the doctrine of election. Those who are the elect of God become the holy ones of God. Do you see this? That's very important. This, again, is why the doctrine of election is so very important for us to understand. There is a consequence to it. God God chooses us, and He saves us, and He then does what for us? He makes us holy. He sets us apart. For who? For Himself. Not for yourself. I'm sorry. You know, Joel Osteen is wrong. Now, I'm not sorry. He's just wrong. <laughs> so, as we know then, the elect are those who are set apart for God. Now, this is interesting to me, and I hope it's interesting to you. The word holy here speaks to our standing in grace. Not, not just a standing alone, but a standing that is based upon a foundation of grace. We're not called to be in this category within our own strength. We're not called or placed it in the context of our own self-sufficiency. But again, it's all connected to grace because the idea of being set apart for God incorporates within it the idea and the picture of us remaining and standing in grace to do the things that God calls us to do as ones who are separated unto Him. This is very important. So God then not only identifies us as separated ones, but then He empowers us through the Holy Spirit to then live that separated life. This is a beautiful picture. And this is what is incorporated into this word. You you may wonder, how on earth can't Pastor John ever get out of a verse? I'm sorry, but there's so much there. I mean, when you begin to unpackage the words, when you unpackage the meaning of them, it amplifies and, and helps us to make the application that is intended we see that we are chosen of God. That, that's enough to completely overwhelm us for the rest of our lives. But not only that, we're beloved because of why? Because we're in Jesus Christ. Because God loves Jesus Christ, He then loves us too. He loves us in Christ. He not, doesn't love you because of you. He loves you because you are in Christ. He loves Christ. Go back to John 17, the high priestly prayer. It's all about that. I'm not going to take the time to go back there now. 
I'll get lost in the passage. I love it so much, but we'll never get out of verse 12. But the picture there is one that shows that the idea of, the God, of God's love for us flows out of his love for Christ. We're placed in him and he loves us. And so we're beloved. And then we're holy too. We're set apart. But not set apart unto ourselves and not set apart separate from Christ. But in Christ, in God's grace. This is what enables me and moves me forward in the context of the progress. And in verse 10, I reach back. I've always got my hand back in the well of the renewal. I'm understanding that I'm never called to be a maverick at all. There are no maverick molecules, R.C. Sproul said, and we know then that there could not be any maverick what? Christians. You know, this morning in Sunday school, we read the passage from Nancy Guthrie's book, Total Truth, and she talked about the idea of, these, of this idea of sovereign the Christians are kind of independent of anything that has to do with any authority of God's word. God does not intend that to be the case, and it does not flow with Scripture to argue. And this certainly speaks to the idea as well. We see that we are not just independent, just roaming around, doing whatever you want. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. That doctrine flies in the face of this entire passage. You can blow the doctrine of the carnal Christian out with verse 12 with just the word holy. Someone comes to you and says, well, I'm a carnal Christian. Well, you can give them some penicillin in verse 12. (laughs) No, friends, look, we're holy and we're beloved. That ought to cause you to weep. That ought to cause you to praise God in a way that you never have. It ought to cause you to revel and reflect on the magnitude and wonder of your salvation. You ought to just, your mind ought to be blown. You know, we're all about big experiences. We are all about having, you know, things that cause this cataclysmic change. This ought to do that for you. You ought to be overwhelmed by the magnitude and the wonder of the very first half of this passage. This passage can get you through a lot of things. This passage can cause you to withstand some of the greatest trials of life. This passage should cause you to stand in the darkest of days, through the deepest suffering, through the greatest laments. Because wrapped up within it is all the purposes of God in saving you. It gives meaning to your life. It gives you purpose to go on. It gives you hope for tomorrow. It causes you to rest. You can lay your head down at night knowing that you can never be removed from this category, ever. That you always will belong to him in any context. You may say to me, well, pastor, I've I've sinned big. I'm a failure. You can't be separated from God. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven in Christ. You are joined with Him forever. You're beloved. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? You can take that to the bank all day long. Well, maybe you don't want to take it to the bank, but you can take it to wherever you keep safe stuff. I don't know where that is anymore. Maybe it's under your mattress. You might get a bigger return. 
But nonetheless, Paul wants to make certain that these Colossian believers in the face of a false teacher... Now, isn't it interesting that in order to defeat the teaching of the false teacher, he takes them back to the doctrine of election... He reminds them of who they are in Jesus Christ in the perspective of the Father, that they're loved, and that they are holy ones who have been separated unto God and that they are sustained by God's grace in that context. <laughs> wow. Bearing in mind that, that it is that teaching, it is that doctrine that is effective and has great value against fleshly indulgent. Go, go back to verse 23 of chapter 2. Let's go back and be reminded of what the false teachers were doing. They were coming in and they were doing all sorts of stuff. This particular false teacher, legalism, Judaism, syncretism, asceticism, I don't know, a lot of nonsense with words of knowledge from angels and spiritism, special temple vision experiences that they had to have in order to be legitimate Christians. And what does Paul say? Well, these things sound clever. They're catchy. They're good in the context of sounding kind of edgy, but they're what? They're of no value. No value against fleshly indulgence. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What is? Verse 12 of chapter 3. Be reminded of who you are. Live in the context of the reality of your election, because in the context of your election, you are loved by the Father who loves Christ, and you are placed in Christ, so therefore he has to love you. It's only, it stands to reason. He cannot be a contradiction, right? If you're placed in something that he loves, and if he loves Jesus Christ, then he's going to love you too. That can't change. And now you're holy, because he's made you holy in his grace, by which he sustains you forever. It's good stuff. So, it's interesting, too, that when we consider the idea of this issue of being beloved, let's consider as well the language that Paul uses. The word for beloved is agapeo, and it speaks to the idea of God's love, the very love that he demonstrated at Calvary, and it's a love that denies self for the benefit of the object loved. Is that not what happened at Calvary? Now, what's interesting, too, is that the word beloved is in the perfect tense. So Paul's using grammar to demonstrate to us that this love is far-reaching and abiding and can never stop. In essence, it means that he has loved you, will continue to love you, and cannot ever stop loving you. The love is an abiding love. Now, our love for each other is phileo. It's that brotherly love. In its, some of its worst forms, it's eros, an erotic type thing, where there's no value to the person. But even in the phileo context, it is not of an enduring quality, is it? But this, this type of love of the Father for us is a constant, consistent love that continues in perpetuity forever and can never be altered by anything, including what you do. And we know that he won't ever do anything differently because why? One of his attributes is his immutability. He can never change. Right? So that's important for us. 
That gives us hope. That gives us strength. And it gives us a motivation then to do the things that Christians do. I understand what God has done. And this is what I want for you. I, I want your motivation. To, when you get up on a Sunday morning, I don't want you to come to church just because, you oh, I got to do it to check the box. No, I want you to come because you love the Lord Jesus Christ because the Father has loved you in Christ. That should be your motivation. I want to come to church because I'm a holy one. What do holy ones do? What do saints do? Well, they don't forsake the assembling of themselves together, according to Hebrews. Now it was a call, high calling for them because the Hebrew church was being severely persecuted. Many in that church would die a short time later after hearing that sermon. And so we see that Paul here wants to make certain that the motivation for the upcoming imperatives are founded and grounded in the gospel, are founded and grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ, are founded and grounded in the doctrine of election, which incorporates into it the idea of God loving us and choosing us and setting us apart for a particular and peculiar purpose. Indeed, Peter would capture the picture of this in 1 Peter by identifying us as pilgrims and sojourners in 1 Peter chapter 2. God's love is abiding, it's far-reaching, it never changes. And so knowing that helps us, it keeps me moving forward. And so these saints, you and I, the ones in Colossae, who we'll see someday, I'm looking forward to that. Did you know I talked about you for three years? <laughs> They'll look at me and go, what? <laughs> they, they read that letter in an afternoon. <laughs> I'm sure we'll laugh about it. So we see that the saints are those who have been loved by God with the present result that they are the object of his love and will always be the object of his love. Knowing that then, I then begin to live for him in a way that demonstrates the reality of that. And that's what Paul's point is here ultimately with regard to these virtues that are, that are going to be listed out. Now, um, I want to take the time to talk about uh, an issue as it relates to how we consider this issue of holiness. Sometimes we get caught up in this idea of, of understanding sanctification, and that's ultimately kind of what Paul is talking about here. He's really teasing out, again, as he has throughout this epistle, the doctrine of sanctification and 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 understanding what our role or our part is in it. And we have to be careful about that because we can fall into a trap that becomes somewhat dangerous. And so what we see here is this. What Paul is explaining to you and I at the beginning portion of verse 12 is that it is fundamentally God's work to make us holy in the practical sense, just as it was in the positional sense. So sanctification is always monergistic. It's always monergistic. In the context of God doing the work and preserving the work. So he does the work. Positionally, I'm sanctified. I'm placed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We focus upon, in that context, Christ 
active and passive obedience. We want to make certain we understand what Jesus Christ did when he was here on earth, why he did it, who he did it for, and the consequences of it. So when I stand, as we know, in from, verse cha- from chapter 1, when Paul says that I'm reconciled in verse 22 of chapter 1, so that I can be presented before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, Paul is talking about positional sanctification. All the works of Christ given over to me. All the work of Jesus Christ given to me and to my credit in the context of all that is required of the law. Jesus fulfilled it all, that therefore I have fulfilled it all. That's how he sees me. I'm not doing more. So when I do these things, and I want to make certain that we're clear about this, when I'm doing these things, I am not becoming more saved. I am not becoming more positionally sanctified. Okay? People fall into a trap here, and they begin to have issues with, you know, becoming boastful, prideful, pietistic in the wrong way. Well, see that? That's a cross. I never missed Sunday school for 50 years. Oh, I, I, I don't drink. I don't smoke, and I don't go with the girls that do. We get focused on those types of things. And so we want to make certain that we're understanding that in the context of what God has done, there is no more better behavior that I can perform to make him love me more, to make me more reconciled, because Jesus Christ already did all of that. So I am squarely, so what's happening for for us as we look at this is I'm understanding that I'm holy, I'm understanding that, that I'm going to reach back, I'm going to reach back into that deep well of, of verse 9 and verse 10, the picture of God clothing us, renewing us, making us new, a renewal that keeps on happening as he continues to press the image of Christ into me. That reminds me that that's all accomplished and being done because of what Jesus Christ did, not because of what I'm currently doing. The result of what God is doing in me is that my life is being changed and I'm living out the reality of it because I want to. Holy ones who are set apart have a desire, a God-given desire, to then live for him. But I'm not becoming more saved. I am not becoming more justified, John Piper. And I'm not having to wait into the future to find out if I'm saved. Again, John Piper. He's flat out wrong on this. My faith, the object of my faith, is not my faithfulness, but it is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm standing in that. What you are doing is not changing God's opinion of you one iota. He cannot love you any more than he loves you. Do you understand this? This will give you great peace and great comfort. Your assurance comes from this fact. As Jerry Bridges tells us in Transforming Grace, too many Christians are caught on the merit treadmill because they don't understand this. You're always working, always walking. I've got to do more. I, uh, give me another list, Pastor. I got the other. I got more. Where are you going? Nowhere. 
because it's already done. And so, it is fundamentally God's work to make us holy in the practical sense, just as it was in the positional sense. And he uses whatever means he sees fit to bring us into that context of holy living. Now, it's important for us to remember that God does include us in the process of enlivening our wills and our energies after personal holiness. It's not a let go and let God thing, as many bumper stickers say. Bumper sticker theology is always dangerous theology. But what it does is this, it provides me then a motivation. I am now living out the consequence of the reality of my positional sanctification because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to demonstrate the reality of my conversion by the way I live. So this is what happens. So look, look at verse 12. What does Paul do? Look at, look at this. Now pay attention. Verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, go sit in a dark room for the rest of your life. Is that what it says? No. So what? Put on a heart. So there's that language, that sartorial tailoring type language, this clothing metaphor that Paul keeps wants us, wants us to see. God provides, we move forward. And this is what's happening. So God includes us in the process of enlivening our wills and our energies after personal holiness. But even this practical holiness is possible only by an impartation of his divine holiness. 2 Peter chapter 1, partakers of the divine nature, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 12.10, he disciplines us for our good that we may what? Share in his holiness. So we see then that Christ's holiness is not only imputed to us in a positional sense, but also imparted to us in a practical sense. Now, this does not mean that we become little gods, but by and through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, we begin to be able to live a life that is demonstrating the reality of that indwelling work. He empowers us. Indeed, the Scripture says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? Because of Him dwelling within us. We are the temple of God. We're told that in Scripture repeatedly. As a consequence of that, we're told not to be engaged in certain things because of the impact that it has on that which indwells us, which is the Spirit of God. And so, rather than buying into the nonsense of the false teacher and thinking about angels and and temple experiences and bizarre rituals and nonsense and the mystery cults that were part of this culture at that time, Paul just says, remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember what God did. He saved you. He elected you. He's keeping you, preserving you. He loves you. He's made you holy. And he will continue to do that as he renews you into the image of Christ. Hence, we understand then this. We do not have a holiness like God's, but we have God's own holiness, both positionally and practically. Positionally, we wear our hearts an identifying mark, the mark of God's image, of God's likeness. This mark is holiness. In an outward behavioral sense, if we are not merely moral but truly holy, it is because the very life of the Holy One is being manifested through us. 
Thus, both positional and practically, holiness is our likeness to God. Holiness is our likeness to God. This is why Peter can say in 1 Peter, be ye holy, for I am holy. That's all Peter's doing. He's not calling anyone to be a little God like the Mormons teach and the Jehovah's Witnesses and some of the Charismatics and all the other nonsense that's out there. This is not little God theology. This is big God theology who changes people and empowers them with His Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. Distinction makes a difference. The bottom line is this, you're holy, so act like it. And that's what Paul will begin to do as we unpackage these other words than that Paul uses. Now, I want to make certain that we're clear about something. This does not mean that we are to sit back passively and wait for God to animate us with His holiness. Instead, we do what? We are to pursue holiness. We are to strive after holiness of character and holiness of conduct. And this is our part in the process. For the holiness that has extended to us at conversion is not immediately evident in our daily lives. And so we grow, right? We, a person gets saved. They may not begin to act as a, real, as, as, a, as a demonstration of it immediately. There might be some changes, but it's going to take some time. You see that in your own children. You see that in your own lives if you reflect upon when God saved you. And as we struggle and grow in the pursuit of practical holiness, it becomes evident to those around us that we have a likeness to who? God. That's what the bottom line is. This is why Paul says what he does. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy, that's a state of being, and beloved, put on, that's an action, a heart of compassion. So, the putting on is a demonstration of the reality of what God has done, but it's an action I'm doing. God isn't putting it on me, I'm doing it in the context of the behavior. I'm the one who is what? acting with compassion. I am the one who is engaged in humility. I am the one who is being gentle. I am the one who is being patient as a demonstration of the reality of what it is that God has done. Now, the beautiful thing is this. When I fail, and I do, when you fail, and you do, when you don't live up to these standards, does God's love for you change at all? No. Why? Because everything that had to be done was done by Christ. So you get to go back to Christ. You get to rest in His finished work. You get to keep resting in Him. This is why I struggle with those who keep, you know, pastors who come in and want to beat congregations up all day with the law, beating you over the head with it constantly. Where's the gospel? Yeah, I want, do I want you to live in this way? Absolutely. Should you? Sure. If you're a believer, you will. That's the result, right? But I also know that you fail. And so I get to give you Jesus Christ, and I get to tell you about Jesus Christ, the one who never failed, the one who was always patient, the one who was always gentle, the one who was always kind. You can always go to him. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the difference between the law and the gospel. The law always condemned me. Christ doesn't condemn me, and I get to rest in that fact. And so we see that holiness is the very essence of our identity as a believer. Jerry Bridges said it this way, to be transformed into the image of God's Son and to be holy as God is holy are essentially synonymous expressions. But what I want us to see through these similar expressions is that what God has predestined for us, He commands us 
to pursue. There is no conflict between God's sovereign will, which He will certainly accomplish, and His moral will for us, which we are to pursue. And we pursue it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So holy is what we are, who we are, and what we become progressively as we pursue holiness on a daily basis. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.1 would call this effort on our part perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so, the challenge for us is to be reminded of the fact that God has called us to be distinct and unique, and we need to keep that in mind as we move into these imperatives, because that's what we're going to start doing, I promise. We will get there. But I don't want you to get caught into the trap of the idea that somehow your performance of all these things makes you more saved, makes you more lovable, and somehow secures your salvation in the future. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Right? Christ alone. Faith in Christ, Christ alone. Sola fide, solus Christus. Saved by God's grace. And so we then live out the reality of that and demonstrate it in the way we act with each other and behave in the world. So next week we'll continue, Lord willing, with looking at the issue of what it means to have a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, moving into verse 13. And I trust that you'll take the time to read ahead and to study these things. And I want to keep reminding you of this fact. Friends, please do this. Please rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't don't look to yourselves. You'll always be disappointed. Always, always, always. Jesus Christ did it all for you already. That's the good news, right? That's the good news. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for loving us in such an overwhelming, wonderful way. We praise you. We rejoice that we are known by you, and we are so grateful that you love us. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.